Digital Drift, episode 14, recorded Friday the 9th of May 2014. The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Let's go! Woo! Good morning. Looking for another beautiful day here in the How city. How about that Spider-Man? Last night on the Manhattan Bridge, he saved a dozen lives. We want to hear your calls. Heads up, watch out! Oscorp has ever worked on. My father has spent more time watching you than me. Why? Isn't that the question of the day? There's something you're not telling me, Aunt May. I once told you that secrets have a cost. The truth does too. We have plans for you, Peter Parker. What is all this? The future. We literally can change the world. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. Welcome back to the second Amazing Spider-Man podcast. We're going to be starting off with a review from Sharon and I, and then graduating to a discussion with Bob Chipman, a.k.a. Movie Bob, about the cinematic future of Spider-Man. So let's start with the most superficial things about this film, and then work our way up to the deeper things. Um, costume. A lot of people have commented on looks fantastic. It does. I, I like the uh, costume. It's bright red and blue, and it's got these great big white eyes. If you compare it to the, uh, the, the one before, which looks like it was made of basketballs, it's very intricate. I, I like that as well. I suppose they, they, were, they were heading towards something that would actually have been made, kind of the bat suit for Spider-Man, but this actually looks like Spider-Man ripped off the comic page and put onto our screens, which is brilliant. However, it's kind of like saying that the lizard's head looks wrong or that he didn't wear his white coat for long enough. These are little niggles about the character, but or indeed little positives about the character, but they're cosmetic. They could have switched out the costume at any time for anything. They could have had him wearing a tutu. There were many, many weaknesses to the lizard, and his him looking like a Goomba from Super Mario Brothers was the least of it. The CGI on the costume has improved to the point where it looks like fabric all the way through. And I think the reason that Tobey Maguire's costume ended up looking so plasticky was because they needed something that wouldn't suddenly change when they went to the CGI shots. That's a fine point. Um, with this, because they could actually continue... So they had to make it look like it was made of rubber. Exactly. With, whereas with this... Millennial because they could rubber. Continue, <laughs> because they could continue with that fabric-y effect right the way through into the CG, mm. they're just... They're there wasn't that disconnect for me. There wasn't that... When I saw CG Spider-Man swinging around the, the skyscrapers, mm. my brain wasn't going, that's blatantly not Andrew Garfield. It would it just kind of accepted it. So it was, it was less that it had a significant impact and more that it removed a block. Uh, the score is, again, very different. Hans Zimmer and the... They're called the Magnificent Six. A combination of fanfare for the common man and dubstep.
I love the new Spider-Man theme, uh, short though it may be. It's got that kind of joyful trumpeting sound to it, which is actually consistent with the first one. Kind of a really compulsive soundtrack to keep listening to, and it's it's got this kind of throbbing feel to it. Uh, although uh, the, the the muttering and shouting in uh, the Electra theme kind of reminds me of the new shit by Marilyn Manson, which makes it feel kind of dated because it brings me back to the Matrix Reloaded. But there is one thing slightly troubling about this. Hans Zimmer did the theme for Batman and then Superman and now Spider-Man. It seems right that he should handle the themes of the main two DC superheroes since they are so intrinsically linked and since we are going to get the Justice League through these two coming together. That that seems oddly appropriate. But then graduating across to Marvel because Sony said, we need Hans Zimmer. It seems it's the the same complaint, which is valid, by the way, of people saying, well, J.J. Abrams has made Star Trek now like Star Wars and now he's going across to make Star Wars like Star Trek like Star Wars. He's in charge of two of the most important sci-fi slash sci-fantasy universes in existence in the hands of one man, kind of the same design ethic. So, musically speaking, that's what giving every job to Hans Zimmer does. However, in this case, it's actually probably the most uh, um, compulsively listenable score since the first one. But then again, so the uh, the uh, Amazing One soundtrack eventually grew on me. It's got less of those quiet moments, though. Again, um, when they took James Newton Howard away from uh, the mix for Dark Knight Rises, suddenly there was a lot less subtlety. It was just the bombast of Zimmer, who is, by the way, capable of extreme subtlety. He just doesn't bring it to his superheroes all that often. And the aesthetic was, again, they answered my questions regarding, you know, why doesn't somebody just turn the goddamn lights on from Amazing One? And they just turned it up, blue skies, bright costume, everything looks reminiscent of the Raimi films. And they're sort of like, everyone, you're back on familiar territory. Are you happy with this now? Which is troubling, because it does feel like they're crowbarring it back to what everyone appears to like. But in many ways, the, the story is just as convoluted as it was before. So it's just the, again, this is, it's just the superficialities and it's like a palette swap almost. Of course, in bringing it back to the superficial similarities of what everyone seems to like, that means that The Amazing Spider-Man 1 is the only one of the five Spider-Man movies not to feature... It did occur to me today that very little really seems to have changed in terms of of Sony's approach to the story and the beats, if you like. I was listening to the Spider-Man 3 podcast that we did. Mm -hmm. Many of the accusations that we were levelling at that run parallel to a lot of accusations that could be levelled at Amazing Spider-Man 2, down to you suggesting that uh, Sandman was very similar to Electro mm. in that they are both 
um, more tools than villains. They need uh, a higher villain a to tool. point. <laughs> Did I say that about Sandman? <laughs> <laughs> you may have done, actually. Um, they even work with the same jokes. But they need um, a, a greater villain to point them in the right direction. And in, in Sandman's case, it was Venom. And in Electro's case, it's Harry. Um, and the fact that you've then got Harry as the Green Goblin in this one as well. Um, you've got... Many of the the same situations that are coming through, and as you say, they've ramped up the colour, they've ramped ramped up the brightness. It it is almost like the bumbling police fumbling with this yeah. new villain is much. Yeah, it's, it's much more. It's much more cartoony. It's much more um, uh, what the the outsider perception of comic booky might well be interpreted to be, um, and it, it almost seems as though they've gone. Well, we literally would have just carried on that way with Toby Maguire if we'd been able to, able to. But now Maguire's too old, so we've we've rebooted in as much as we've just switched everybody out. He was um, too old just, in two thousand two. Well, very true. Um, and now we're literally just going to pick back up again where we left. Off. On a side note, we ranked all the villains from the Spider-Man movies in order, weighing them up on narratively consistent character behaviour, relatability, and finally, being visually dynamic on screen. We came up with a surprising order from worst to best. At nine, it's the Rhino. At eight, Venom, or whatever that thing was called. At seven, Electro. At six, Harry Osborn in Amazing Spider-Man. At five, The Lizard. At four, Norman Osborn in Spider-Man. At three, Sandman. At two, Doctor Octopus. Which leaves number one, Harry Osborn in Spider-Man 3. The new goblin, or the night surfer, if you will. That one surprised the hell out of us. We thought Doc Ock would be a shoe-in. But ultimately, you spend more time with Harry. Harry's full redemption and death means more. Now, it'd be simplistic to say Spider-Man 3's problem wasn't that it had too many villains. It would also be simplistic to say that they shouldn't have bloody well had Venom, but they shouldn't have bloody well had Venom. Everything that happens is relevant to the plot, and everything that is relevant to the plot happens. Every single time somebody says something or does something or goes somewhere, it's done in such a way that you just know it's going to be significant to how the story unfolds. There is no so narratively background speaking, detail. It's pulling a lever and a door opens slightly further in the level. Absolutely. There is, there is no sense of background detail. There's no Apart from between Peter and Gwen and, to a lesser extent, May. Mm. Um, That's down to performance. Exactly. Um, but it, it, there's no sense of people just living their everyday lives and then the plot grows out of that. It, it's A to B to C to D, all the way through to Z. They don't miss any steps. Nothing is left to, for you to, to speculate on or guess. If you don't want to, I mean, you can, but basically the framework of everything you need to put the plot together is all there and very little else. Hmm. 
That's not to say that there's nothing of value just dotted in amongst the actual goings-on. I think you um, attribute it to, to be, if you imagine that on one hand you've got not so much character development, but character interaction from the uh, well-cast characters. On the other hand, you've got stuff going on that will get Spider-Man into fights. And you sort of swap one hand in, then swap it out, and then put the other hand in, then swap it out, and the other hand in, and just keep going hand, then hand, then hand, then hand. Yeah, uh, but there is there is no blending. There is no sense of these things overlapping. I mean, actually... Almost like you could cut the movie in half, and it would yeah, still make sense. Absolutely. I or mean, as much sense. To be honest with you, Harry is a fantastic example. He's like a little microcosm of this. Harry as Harry interacting with Peter as Peter is two characters sharing time, reminiscing about when they were younger, uh, speculating on their futures. Being somewhat awkward around each other and then easing back into a sort Absolutely. of an old friendship. And that, that all feels, if not completely realistic, because I'm just so used to Dane DeHaan being a little bit hammy and a little bit over the top, mm. it at least feels like, like characters getting to know each other and you know there is a reality to the performance but then when he's doing his goblin stuff that's completely different and and none of that feels as though there's any shred of reality about it when he he walks in and meets his father i'm tex rich man mr texas t people call me rich because i got more money i got more cheddar than some supersized nachos got cash flow like robert has the nero we've got an entire conversation of, as you know, you sent me away to boarding school when I was 11 years old. As you, you know. Let me come home again until you sent me a bottle well, of scotch. as you know, Harry. Birthday. He's your father. He knows all this. You don't have to phrase it that way. It, it, you know, there, there's other ways that you can write script to reveal what has gone on between them in the past without literally having them state it to each other. Harry, I have something to tell you. Let me guess, I'm a dreadful disappointment to you. You're a dreadful disappointment to me, son. Wow, this truly is the untold story. It's immensely frustrating to me when people do that. And particularly in in a film where there is other conversation that's going on that actually does feel like it all hangs together. At least because everything's so stylized in the Raimi version, there's less of a jarring jump between what feels realistic and what seems like overly costumey. That's true, actually. Although it, it does have that sense of, of some places where it feels right and some places where it doesn't. Like, for example, the conversation between Peter and Mary Jane on the bridge, um, where she's allegedly lying to him because Harry wants her to, but in actual fact, she's telling him the truth. Mm-hmm. I love that dialogue. I think that conversation's great. Maguire's twisted, whiny face annoys me a little bit, but the actual interaction... Must be Tuesday. Between, yeah. <laughs> Um, the actual interaction between them works really well. And that was like the better, uh, the better played out scenes in Amazing Spider-Man 2. But then all the stuff with the costumey villains. It just, it, it just, there seems to be such a consistent line through 3 and Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2 of what on earth, how do we do these villains? And, and I suppose you could probably say of say of uh, Spider-Man one and two as well. Uh, it's to a lesser extent. Lesser. They had more of a, a, an idea of like they were trying more clearly. Mm. With 
I, I don't think they weren't trying with, say, Doc Connors, but there's a definite point where they're like, ah, oh, for fuck's sake, turn him into a big lizard, and then that's it. They sort of almost wash their hands of, uh, of, uh, being able to keep trying to, they, I hear on the documentary stuff about it, you know, we've got to find the man beneath the lizard. I think, yeah, that's a great ethos to stick to. Why didn't you? Mm, and then, yeah. like, at, at the end, when he saves Peter, that's a lovely moment. Mm. But, but you see this happening, and, when you can actually identify the the points where it starts to fall apart and where it picks up again and you just know that you could edit this with a pair of scissors and take out the bits that are shit and it just makes it seem whether this is true or not I don't know but it Especially just makes it's it a seem butt numbing two and a half hours absolutely that but that there's producers who are basically going like tapping their watch we have a deadline to get this out never mind your script rewrites never mind your you know acting workshops where the characters get to know each other let's just get on with the cartoon shit significantly it was a uh, change in script writer the first guy was james vanderbilt with a little bit of uh, script doctoring from uh, steve clovis Uh, this one was bob orsi one of the things that uh, about the script that annoys the piss out of a lot of people, myself included, is how they fast-track a lot of things. Now, they're clearly leading up to the Sinister Six, so everything sort of started falling into place uh, with that. Harry's destiny, because of the unhappy event at the end of this, there had to be a goblin around. For some reason, they decide to dispense with Norman Osborn and focus on Harry within a conversation Firstly, if Norman Osborn is straight off dead in this universe and isn't coming back at all, that'd be like Loki dying in the first 12 minutes of Thor. This is potentially the greatest foe Spider-Man's ever faced, and he, he takes everything really personally, has it in for Peter in a way that Harry is going to have a different perspective on, and the two of them working in tandem creates a really great emotionally complex web for Spider-Man to be trapped in. But you do away with Norman altogether after one conversation. If you aren't bringing him back at all, if you aren't having him as the mastermind behind the Sinister Six, and it is in fact just this hat guy or someone else, or it doesn't matter, then you have chucked the baby out with the bathwater. So Harry is fast-tracked onto his destiny at the point where he's like, I must have, what was it, the Oz formula, the green shit. Mm. And I ejects it, and then within seconds, a door comes back, and his goblin suit's there, and his glider's there, and Harry could at least at this point have stopped and said, hang on, what the fuck has a goblin suit got to do with this formula? Oh no, suddenly I've got weird hair. There's dealing with the subject of destiny poorly, and then there's, look, there's like six things that have to happen to get Harry to this place. Can we just do them all in three minutes? But the stuff where he's talking with Peter was at least watchable. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. I was going to say, if that's not a backhanded it, compliment... It was compelling was. because I've seen what a ticking time bomb Dane DeHaan can be in the uh, the Superior Chronicle. But think about it. Why does Chronicle work? We will cover this when, when we, we review Chronicle, Chronicle. But because you see his life you see little snippets visually not because he sits down and looks at the camera and says this happened today and it was bad but you see little things happening which mean that when he finally goes off the deep end you understand completely why you have total sympathy for him because you've seen the shit he's gone through 
it's almost like this Harry should have been there from the very beginning and they should have given him more of a run up but they it's apparent that they weren't sure what they were doing with this first film and that corroborates my theory of the idea that they had a completely different end to that first film a lot of the complaints are that you were talking about the untold story what really gets answered at this point we get to see a bit more about Peter's parents mystery was set up in the first one wasn't really elaborated upon or solved in the second one but it also wasn't addressed in such a way that makes you think anything other than what were they doing well they were making the villains of Spider-Man why we have no answer for this yet the answer is still because movie Whatever the answer is, it will never be significant enough because they can't think of something that makes enough sense. But they couldn't think of anything that made enough sense for the original Norman Osborn in the original Spider-Man. But they weren't framing the movie Spider-Man around what's Norman going to do? We just knew it was going to be bad. Mm. Also, I think Dane DeHaan was at an unfortunate disadvantage in that we'd seen a version of Harry who got steadily better as the movies went on. Yeah. Is it possible to say that uh, over the course of this movie, Dane DeHaan gets worse? Um, yeah. Yes. He does. Speaking of worse... uh, Well, let's just do Paul Giamatti very quickly, because they did. Um, Mm -hmm. He's in it for about 12 seconds at the beginning, shouting in a really uncomfortably racist sort of Russian, like, Borat-style accent... And you wonder why it's uh, Paul Giamatti. And they think, ah, he'll probably be back later. And then he has about the same length of time at the very end of the movie, shouting in Russian. And the bit where he's like, you know, he's bearing down on a kid. I thought, right, this is where you can actually humanize the rhino and going, get that kid out of my way. I don't want to hurt him. So it's like, okay, so this guy is vicious, but at the same time, he doesn't want to hurt kids. But he looked like he was well able to pop a calf in a kid. So you're like, well, there's no, there's no character here. He's just psychotic. I ask again, why cast Paul Giamatti in this role? He's one of the best actors on the planet. He is capable of incredibly subtle, frustrated roles. Why have him turned up to 11 and screaming? I have no doubt that Paul Giamatti had a lot of fun with it. I do. (laughs) (laughs) We literally can change the world. Robbing bags! Flying around! Throwing pumpkin bombs! Picking up multiple things at once! Hunting lions! Being mysterious! Robbing armored cars on their way to the back! Shooting at children! Crushing planes! Sinister success ball! Jamie Foxx as Max Dillon. Now, um, Jamie Foxx has played a uh, nerdy, uh, recessive character named Max in a film called Collateral. He was excellent in it, and um, it was uh, really understated and really used his abilities. Now, Jamie Foxx is a cool guy. He is motherfucking cool. He makes Denzel Washington look like Weird Al Yankovic. That's how cool he is. So seeing him with this comb over, the gap in his teeth, and like doing nerd face... It's it's kind of like seeing... What did I equate it to? It's like Colin Firth pretending to be a really annoying stereotype of an American for a film that the studio want to be popular in America. I'm talking about being as a firm nerd in the audience, sitting there going, wow, that's, that's kind of what you think of us. Jesus. That's how uncomfortable his version of Max Dillon made me feel. Uh, a lot of people have leveled the, this as being Edward Nigma in uh, Batman Forever. Yeah, that's apt. He pretty much is. He doesn't scream random shite like Jim Carrey does in that film. 
but he's the same level of uh, you want to go out and get yourself a girlfriend that's your problem chum that's the level of characterization that's how some people see introverts yeah yeah introvert face would that be a way of putting it yeah nice you, you don't like going out and meeting people. Well, then you must spend all your life in a single room with newspaper clippings all over the wall. Masturbating. But Ooh, I mean, Are we doing muggle face? <laughs> <laughs> Although that did really frustrate me about um, Max Dillon. Um, and as you say, we, we've seen Jamie Foxx play what would have been a realistic version of this character perfectly but I knew that that particular setup wasn't going to last for very long what I find, found the most frustrating was that once he's turned into Electro and he emerges out into the street and his power starts to get away from him that's the moment that you really have an opportunity to characterise him because what what Max basically is, what he represents, e- even in other versions of um, Electro that I've seen, he is, um, you know, a, a working man. He's somebody who has um, no power, no control over his life. He is at the whim and the behest of other people. Um, in this particular version, he's constantly being bossed around by BJ Novak. Hmm. Um, who, by who, the way, is playing Smythe, who fans of the 90s show will remember was a key villain in that. Um, so he's, he's kind of goes from having no power to being a being of immense literal power. He is infused with it. Um, but the problem is that if you do that as a sudden switch with no real um, examination of how Max comes to terms with that... And he doesn't. Then, and he doesn't, not in this... Um, it, it basically is saying, well, if you take people who have no power and suddenly give them power, what's going to happen? They're going to get all destructive with it. it, it there's, you know, He's there's, not really a tragic figure and could have been no. easily just by making him sympathetic. Exactly. Or, or even a humanised figure. You know, just take a few moments to show. I, I think there's, there is actually a brief second where he appears terrified of his abilities. That's what I would have liked to see them expand on. But instead, they go from that straight to him suddenly realising the immense destructive capability that he has and wrecking Times Square and having New Yorkers line up at the side of the road to watch and make bets on who's going to win and you know all of the things that you of course do when some random immensely powerful figure is trashing your street not get out of the way because a building could fall on you actually a very sensible, very depressing reason why Max was depicted as a pathetic nerd. Movie studios get nervous when exciting anti-heroes turn up and hurt people. 
real-life maniacs and aggressive idiots have a nasty habit of wearing their influences on their sleeve, and if the influence wasn't there, the news media will find one. Almost always movie or video game related. Hence Max is pathetic, not someone you want to be, and Spider-Man kicks his ass, with more than a little help from Gwen Stacy. If Spider-Man's got to face him twice, the first time should actually have been Spider-Man meets him. And then the whole trying to stop anybody intervening should have been Spider-Man's motive the whole way through and trying to keep people, shield Max from other people. But Max is lashing out at other people and at Spider-Man out of fear. This is just the simple stuff that a cartoon could manage. Nearer to the end, when it's like, right, you pushed me and pushed me, you people. You've literally given me no recourse. I'm going to push back now. That should have been a late development in the character. Just, I mean, visually, I suppose, interesting. I did like the uh, bit with the uh, freeze frames in the um, to, to display the spider sense and when Spidey yanked those two people away from the uh, railings. I also like the fact that they cut to the um, two completely unrelated planes in the air. While it may seem nothing of Spider-Man's business down on the uh, ground... Because it also cut to the hospital in Aunt May, it was kind of showing, look, Spidey is not the only person, not the only professional trying to work in the middle of a crisis here. It's everyone in New York. And you've got the people at the uh, mission control trying to stop the planes crashing into each other. And Spidey wearing the helmet, while it may seem like, well, when did he have time to put that on, kind of makes him part of the, the people trying to prevent calamities. It was heavy-handed and confusing, but it all kind of relates to the idea of the New York Emergency Services being heroes. Yes. And this is the first time that it's really clicked with me that he wears red and blue, which is effectively the fire department and the police. Mm -hmm. You want to know how powerful I am? You're about to find out. Okay, I gotta go. I'm coming with you. Come on, it's too dangerous. Sorry, I love you. Don't hate me. Peter! And... One of the worst performances in the whole thing, Kafka. Where the hell? This guy actually would have felt out of place, cartoonish and way over the top in the Raimi films. He would actually have been better suited to, say, Batman and Robin. He was embarrassing to watch. I just thought, how does he get a high-paid job in New York as a medical practitioner? He seemed like, if there's such a thing as a pantomime Nazi, that... And Aunt May, again, only gets a very small scene uh, in this, but uh, again, manages to make her mark uh, Sally Field with a a powerful little dramatic scene with Peter where she, uh, I don't think she's ever really done this before, but she she shows an intensity and a connection to Peter, which left her quivering. I I could definitely have done with more of uh, Aunt May and a lot less of everyone else we just talked about. Mm. And I didn't think I'd say that about Sally Field, since I wasn't actually blown away by her the first time I saw the film, but retroactively I've gone back and now like her performance in the first one. Yeah. yeah. I, I know a few people have mentioned that they um, they really didn't like her scene with Peter in this one. Um, that they uh, they felt that her 
her speech about you're my boy was um, basically her being immensely selfish. I think to characterise it that way is basically to ignore the character's humanity. What do you want from Aunt May? Do you really want saintly old woman who never, ever, ever puts a foot wrong? I liked the fact that she was admitting to an overpowering emotion because jealousy can be an overpowering thing and it's not something that you can necessarily eliminate and to some people why would they want to don't worry about i like the fact that this version of her is not the scrubbed clean holy woman of raimi's (laughs) films she is a bit mother Teresa. Uh, and by that, I mean the idealized version of Mother Teresa as well. Mm, indeed. Mm. But again, this is this is the thing that the moral ambiguity that I think, just speaking of, of Amazing Spider-Man as a whole, the moral ambiguity that comes through in the human characters, not in the cartoony villain characters, but in the human characters, um, is something that appeals to me because... Nobody is one thing. Peter cannot be all good. And neither can May, and neither can Gwen, and neither can Captain Stacy. The well-drawn villains are not all bad. People do good things and bad things, and stupid things, and brave things, and sometimes they do them in the same sentence. And it it makes for more interesting characters to me to see heroes doing things which I want to slap them for and villains doing things that I want to hug them for. Because otherwise they're not, they're not real to me. They're just representative. And if I'm going to look at something that's representative, I'll read a 10 minute fairy story or a, a myth. Something where the big cut out shapes feel more appropriate. I don't want to waste two and a half hours on cardboard cutouts. You did have something to say about Peter and Gwen, though. I think the only thing I did want to mention was this was something that got brought up on the forum um, as an example of a, uh, a poorly written and unrealistic moment when uh, Peter admits to Gwen that he's been following her. Mm-hmm. And people were speculating about why she is okay with this um, when in actual fact that would be something that would be quite creepy for somebody to be doing is it okay for a boy to creep after you if he's hot yeah well that was what it came down to somebody suggested that it was because peter was cute at which point i i kind of put my head in my hands a little bit um but no it's to me that is all about context it's all about circumstances because gwen did not say to him when they broke up you know, this is, I, I don't love you anymore. Your behavior is now accept, unacceptable to me and I don't want you um, to, to come near me again. Um, that's one thing. Saying, right, you're claiming you can't be with me because you made a promise to my dying father and yet you don't seem to be able to keep yourself away from me. I'm getting really frustrated about the fact that you can't make your mind up. So I'm going to take that choice away from you. It's a completely different scenario. The fact that she seems completely okay with it and is in fact rather amused by it 
was to me the governing factor and, and you know not that she was like oh well that that seems kind of awkward but uh, okay and that's the point where it's creepy i'm i'm looking at her reaction and her response and that's kind of what gives me the cue of how to feel about this particular incident so I have heard it complained about that uh, he makes the uh, promise to her father at the end of the film, and then it seems like he's going to stick to it. But the first film did that, the first Tobey Maguire one. So he goes back on that and says... The promises you can't keep are the best kind. And she smiles, and it's like, aha, see, we've, we've broken the formula. Now he's not going to keep that promise, which kind of foreshadows the terrible events that are going to happen. Then he goes back on it at the beginning of this one, almost undoing the good work he did in the first... They don't know it's a movie. They don't know they've moved from one to the other. There are no happy endings in real life. Narratively speaking, of course, yeah, it undoes it. But if you take the idea that there are stops and starts out of it, it's very possible in real life to make a decision, go back on it, and think, look how sad she is. Who am I helping with this one? And then to actually have it finally start to sink in, the danger that your lifestyle represents to someone else, I felt that scanned absolutely completely as, as something that you could just go, oh, you know what, I was right the first time. I've been using uh, the, the fact that it made you happy to excuse myself of this obligation. It almost seems like the fact that he promised her father is irrelevant. It's good advice, frankly, given to him by her father. Don't get Gwen involved with this. Yeah. He tries and to ignore it, but ultimately when it comes down to it, Captain Stacy was absolutely right. Yeah, and the fact that he realises that too late yeah. is is part of the tragedy. But I think, I mean, it, it all ties in with the idea of um, Spider-Man being this symbol. And yes, he is representative of hope um, for New York, and he is representative of... Um, the the person who will act when bad things are happening rather than the person who will look the other way and walk by, which in a big city is the standard that you hear something terrible going on two alleyways away and you ignore it. You walk the other way because you don't want to get involved. Spider-Man represents the idea of you do get involved and, you know, somebody who has that community spirit, but he's not just a symbol and i think that's that's the important part there are loads of people in this particular version who are symbols captain stacy is a symbol to peter he passes on this kind of idea of of sacrificing your uh, yourself and having this duty and this obligation um so he gives he passes that torch to peter gwen in this is there's a, a remark that the goblin makes about taking away peter's hope and i think this is part of what got a lot of people thinking that gwen was basically just being another you know woman who gets killed off so that boyfriend hero can be overwhelmed with this resentment and, and anger and be inspired to want to take revenge and, it, and it's all about what happens to her motivates his uh, his next actions and his next course and, and actually she is kind of irrelevant in all of this but to me it was all about what she was doing it's it's not that she died that has had the biggest impact on him it's what she did before she died it's what she was trying to do what she was trying to uh, to put into motion and i think the biggest 
a, a most significant moment for him is not the season-changing grief by the graveside, which I actually think was quite nicely done. I thought it, it portrayed how he was feeling quite effectively. But it's that moment where he decides that, right, I'm going to basically be inspired by what she did. And he takes that and, and moves forward, which is how life goes on after somebody's died. When I left the cinema after seeing this one, I announced that it was my favourite Spider-Man movie. However, that does not mean it's the best. Far from it. There's actually a solid argument as to why this movie, effectively Spider-Man 5, is in fact the most poorly constructed and messy of them all, on a technical scale. The reason I love it, despite the mountainous technical flaws, is down solely to a deep connection I feel towards Andrew Garfield's Peter and Emma Stone's Gwen. I would have been happy to see a movie solely about them discussing various things in a coffee shop. As such, when the pieces all fell into place by the middle end, I began to feel something I never do in the cinema. Fear. Genuine, nerve-shredding fear, followed by heart-wrenching, paralyzing sorrow. This has only happened to me twice before in relation to entertainment on a level this intense. Once was watching the TV show Dexter. The other was enough to make me stop watching Game of Thrones. All three were depictions of characters I had grown invested in and in fact grown very fond of seeing on screen, having their lives cut short by madmen. I cannot explain why that affects me so much, but I can say... No previous Spider-Man movie had a moment this powerful or memorable for me. Not even close. While Spider-Man 1 and 2 are pretty great throughout, they feature leads I never invested in and actively annoy me. Amazing 1 is a fleetingly excellent but on the whole pretty formulaic Spider-Man story bogged down by attempting to stretch a personal drama over the epic and worn frame of the Spider-Man formula one which is shared by too many movies already, including Spider-Man 3. This is the same thing, but even more shabby and nonsensical. Without Garfield and Stone, it would be worthless. With them, it stabbed at my heart and left me a wreck. The film constitutes the countdown to and payoff of the moments Spider-Fans were waiting for. I savoured every minute they were together and watched them closely for the truth behind their performances, which being an item in real life, galvanised beyond measure. For a time, I thought Gwen might be home free, even given another movie's worth of reprieve to spend in England, or perhaps they wouldn't go for it this early, anything to see more of these two together. Even up to the point where she was hanging by a thread, it could still have been sleight of hand, designed to tease and torment the fans. That was the root of my fear, the not knowing what could happen in the next few moments, and the desperation for Peter and Gwen to avert this.
Instead, it ripped my fucking heart out. And we see her snatched away from us all, and the wreckage that Peter becomes as a result. I agree with film crit Hulk, who hates this film, that this event should have taken place halfway through, and the whole second half should have been about the journey back to being Spider-Man. As it stands, the event itself and its aftermath, watching Peter, watching Gwen's speech, gaining the strength to step back out there, the slow pan around to the hero in the street who has found his way back after every fibre of his being has told him, enough. These are more than enough to elevate this to my de facto favourite, simply because now Spider-Man is facing an enemy we will all eventually face. It is inescapable if you are going to love someone, and it cannot be defeated with physical strength or cunning. Loss and grief. Without a truly believable love, I could not share that truly believable grief and recovery. This is why Amazing 2 matters to me and always will. We can be heroes. Why Gwen Stacy is not just a refrigerated woman. There was a point during Amazing Spider-Man 2 when I started inexplicably welling up. It's probably not the moment you're thinking of. By that point, I was already in complete emotional floods. No, it was the scene where Gwen is about to run into the power station to use her considerable knowledge of how to fix things to try and reset the grid. Gwen's ability to find and administer solutions was already well established, having been demonstrated in Amazing Spider-Man when she goes to Oscorp to synthesize the antidote to Connor's lizard toxin and use the Ganali device to distribute it. She was also shown putting that insight to good use on Peter, guessing pretty quickly that he had promised her father to stay away from her to keep her safe, despite Peter's best attempts to hide it. Kudos to Garfield, incidentally. Simultaneously concealing and revealing something using only facial muscles and body language is near impossible to fake, but he manages it. But it wasn't Gwen's expertise or insight that had me so inspired that I cried. It wasn't that she's sharper than Peter, or that she's not only top of her class but proud of it. It wasn't that she is one of the few women in movies who is permitted to be of superior intelligence to the male hero, but also sexy. And more importantly, that she controls her interactions with the boys she deals with. It wasn't even that layers were added to her character by her obvious hero worship of her father, and to a lesser extent, Dr. Connors, that she is simultaneously slightly amused and slightly in awe of these men, and that neither response stops her from wanting to emulate them. No, what really got to me was the line, No one makes my decisions for me. This is my choice. I was pretty sure this was the last decision Gwen was going to make. I know the original comic where she meets her end, the filmmakers had put enough clues in for me to pick up on where they were going with it, despite the against-the-odd spoiler avoidance I'd managed to maintain. The emergence of Harry's Green Goblin form, the glider, the scene where Peter takes her to the top of the Washington Bridge, all had me prepared for the worst. And there was something else, too. Gwen is a civilian. She doesn't have a hero's narrative invulnerability. And unlike some other love interest characters, for example Pepper Potts, she's never been given any powers of her own to mitigate the audience's concern for her. In her comic book form, powerfully written though the scene is, she's a classic example of a woman in a refrigerator. Wives, girlfriends, mothers, sisters and daughters who were killed off in the name of tormenting male heroes and giving them motivation to avenge their loss. I couldn't help thinking that her end was inevitable. All I could hope was not yet. 
I have what some may consider a mixed-up perspective when it comes to heroes. Probably inspired by my love of Greek mythology as a child, I like them vulnerable. I like them flawed. I love to see how the chiseled god that is worshipped unconditionally cracks under the pressure of that expectation, the lengths the unworthy idol will go to in order to hide their own imperfections. But better than this, I love the acts of heroism that emerge, unexpected, from those who have no hope of making the pedestal, and frankly, no desire to. Gwen is smart, and she is determined, and most importantly, she is brave. She knows the risks of her actions, she takes them anyway. She knows there is more at stake than her own life. She's seen her father make that decision on a daily basis. How can she do any less? She tells Peter as much, that this is on her, that it is not his place to choose to take it all on himself and reduce their chances of success. Her first act in this story, back at the beginning of Amazing Spider-Man, is to join Peter in helping to separate Flash from the young boy he is bullying. Her last is to die, not pointlessly, not in a clumsy attempt to deepen a man's emotional journey, but because she chooses to put herself between the citizens of her home city and the enemy at the gates. So right now, she's my hero. It's easy to feel hopeful on a beautiful day like today. But there will be dark days ahead of us too. There will be days where you feel all alone. And that's when hope is needed most. No matter how buried it gets, or how lost you feel, you must promise me that you will hold on to hope. Keep it alive. We have to be greater than what we suffer. My wish for you is to become hope. People need that. And even if we fail, what better way is there to live? As we look around here today at all of the people who helped make us who we are, I know it feels like we're saying goodbye. But we will carry a piece of each other into everything that we do next to remind us of who we are and of who we're meant to be. I've had a great four years with you. I'll miss you all very much. We're here now with Bob Chipman, also known as Movie Bob. Hello, Bob. Hello. Now, despite our differing views on the relative merits of the amazing movies, all three of us, you, me and Alex, seem to be of a mind that we'd rather the series stopped right here. Sony appear to be planning a sinister sextet of Spider-Man-related movies over a six-year period, seemingly attempting to emulate the Avengers formula within this pocket-arachnid Marvel Universe. So you've got 2012's Amazing Spider-Man, 2014's Amazing Spider-Man 2, 2016 Amazing Spider-Man 3, if you check out the IMDb. 2016 also has Venom. 2017, there's no set year for this one at the time of recording, but 2017 is my prediction for the mooted Sinister Six film. And then 2018, there is a logged and amazing Spider-Man 4. And in terms of concentrated saturation of a franchise over a short time period, this is up there with the original Planet of the Apes quintet over five years before the law of diminishing returns caused that to collapse. 
Now, granted, this is pretty much an unkillable multimedia franchise dating back over 50 years, but there was a time when both The Man of Steel and The Dark Knight truly outstayed their welcome. And we don't just mean The Man of Steel and The Dark Knight Rises. Superman and Batman took four films each over nine and eight years respectively to exhaust their characters. The original Spidey reached a suitable moment to bow out in three movies over five years. Now, Sony reputedly were looking at a projected $1 billion for Amazing 2, more than any Spider-Man movie in the past. The first made $821 million, the second $783, the third $890, and Amazing, the least of all of them, with 752. So they wanted to come back with the strongest box office after the weakest box office. Now, this seems to suggest Sony is at best posturing due to overconfidence in the license and at worst overcompensating for the shareholders under intimidating financial circumstances. So what we're talking here is what, in our finely honed professional opinions, appears to be happening with the Amazing Spider-Man series and what... In an ideal world, we would like to happen before too much damage is done. So if this project somehow remains successful against, it would appear, everyone's hopes and dreams, uh, apart from Sony's and their shareholders, what are we likely to see happen within these movies in the next few years? And you can go as meta as you like on this. And this is, again, this is for all of us. So uh, because you're the guest, Bob, predictions. Well, right now, um, I'm going to have to kind of come up with new predictions on the fly because a lot of what I was saying even on uh, when I wrote uh, Peace for the Escapist on Friday, well, mm-hmm. it came out on Friday, uh, about, uh, you know, okay, we're, these are going to be with us for a while. Here's some things that could happen to make this not so terrible. I'm looking at uh, box office news right now from uh, Deadline.com, which is a rancid site, but is sort of <laughs> the Hollywood industry standard for uh, tracking these things. And uh, I am not right now sure that we are going to have to bother mm-hmm. with more Amazing Spider-Man movies, uh, looking at what happened at the Friday box office this weekend, which, which is being called a disaster. Oh, for, for Sony. Did it also launch alongside Neighbors, or is Neighbors not yet launched in the States? Uh, well, Spider-Man came out two weeks ago internationally, mm-hmm. which turns out to have been a good deal, for, uh, good news for them, because they at least got the good news cycle of Spider-Man made a ton of money in Russia and China and Australia and the UK and Europe and a bunch of other areas. But the domestic box office is the big cheese. Well, the domestic box office is, it's still, on average, you get the bigger opening returns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, and it's, it's what they pay attention to. It's what they get, it's what they consider the most reliable data. And, uh, it's, it's what people report on. So even like, uh, for example, the movie Robocop, uh, the remake of Robocop, technically is turning a profit because they went gaga for it in Russia and China. Uh, which, which seems to happen with pretty much every big action movie will do well in Russia and China. But in the U.S. box office, that movie was dead on arrival, and now it's known as a bomb. So, you know, you could make another one and turn a profit, probably, but, you know, your investors are going to look at you and go, RoboCop, everyone knows that was a bomb. Uh, in the case of Spider-Man, not a bomb, but is clearly on a downward trend. Uh, the movie opened with $90 million last week, $91 million. Uh, which is impressive-ish for a, a movie of this type. Um, 72% drop this weekend. Right. With uh, Neighbors, an R-rated comedy, uh, coming in beating what's basically a family-targeted action movie 
um, neighbors getting a huge number, could be as high as 50 million by the end of the weekend. Um, that just looks bad. If you are an investor in Hollywood movies, if you've got someone selling the most bulletproof thing on the planet, which is a superhero movie, PG-13, so everyone can see it, with Spider-Man, an incredibly popular character, and you can't last one week at number one, and the movie that takes you down is an R-rated comedy that pretty much only teenage boys and uh, college kids are going to see, that is real bad. And, uh, you know, on Monday, someone is going to be calling up Sony angry because they spent about $450 million to make and market this movie, which means they've got to clear in the neighborhood of $800 million worldwide to turn a prop, to start turning a profit. You can even forget about anything else. As we speak, it's the mid-afternoon in America right now, so unless everybody goes to see it tonight, on a Saturday, that is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, Sunday is a holiday in the U.S. is Mother's Day. Right. Oh, yeah, that's... Well, everyone's going to take their mother to go see Amazing Spider-Man 2. That's obvious. Right, yeah, no, the only thing that's going to happen on Sunday is that the other woman and a, uh, a Christian movie called Mom's Night that's also bombing are, uh, are probably going to both do, uh, you know, a little bit better business than they did on the other days. Phew. Like, so this is bad. If yeah. You're, if, if you're Sony, this is... Like, it's not heads will roll bad, but it's the sort of thing where your investors look at you and go, okay, you want to make how many more of these money-losing movies? Because that's what this is right now. This this is probably going to not equal the box office of the first one, which was considered a low-budget film. Yeah. Well, I think it was considered a low-budget film. My theory in the uh, in last week's show was that it started out at a, 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 with a low budget, and they were going to make a, a, a Twilight-style romance, and then there was some sort of cash injection halfway through, which meant that they kind of completely changed the pace of it. And as soon as the uh, as Connors turned into the lizard, they turned it into, the way I put it, was they stretched it across the frame of the previous Spider-Man movies to make it more like something that people would like. And I think not even subconsciously, people were getting that, and it didn't feel right. No, you're correct. That's uh, that that is exactly what went down in the production of uh, of the first one. They both of these were extensively rewritten as they were being made. Um, there's a lot of changes. You can, if you you know, there were like 1,100 trailers for this. Yeah. And if you watch them all, they are mostly made of scenes that aren't in the movie. Right. In this one, the big uh, change was. If you see in the trailers, there's a lot of business about Harry Osborn saying Osborn has been following Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. That's missing from the movie. Oh, I remember that now, yeah. yeah. Uh, Colm Fjord is uh, playing like a, an evil Oscorp board member guy mm-hmm. who apparently was originally supposed to be Dr. Ratha, uh, having that they rewrote the movies to have him survive into the second one, and then decided they didn't need him and uh, got Colm Fjord. Uh, Harry Osborn was supposed to destroy the Oscorp Tower in the Green Goblin armor. Uh, that's in the trailer. You can see him into uh, a window uh, at uh, the, the girl playing Felicia Hardy, who mm-hmm. is in the movie exclusively to tell us that she'll be in the next couple movies. Yeah, Felicity Jones. And, there was so, and, and the Green Goblin was supposed to get basically beaten to death by Peter Parker at the end for, uh, for killing Gwen Stacy. Spoiler alert. Jesus. And, that which, uh, I'm assuming, would then segue into the black costume and probably. the age of Peter. Uh, well, there, there's, there's but a test trailer. audiences found that depressing somewhat. Yeah. Well, there's even a trailer where when uh, Sinister Man in Hat 
is uh, is walking by uh, the, the the Sinister Six arms and yeah, well, he walks, he walks by Doc Ock's tentacles and uh, the vulture wings, and then he walks over and we see the rhino cost the, the rhino armor. Mm-hmm. In one of the trailers, I think an Australian trailer, he walks by the the wings, and instead there's a big floaty ball of black goo that I think is supposed to be the symbiote. Symbiote. In the movie, it's been digitally swapped out with the rhino armor. Uh, a lot of people are thinking that the rhino originally was supposed to be all at the beginning of the movie and that they cut his scene in half and put some ADR in so they could have a fight scene at the very end of the movie. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. So, like, that whole ending was basically just transplanted from the beginning. Well, I can't... Because there's very... Because he's in a spider suit, they... Oh, my... That would explain also why Paul Giamatti has been photoshopped into that scene. Well, they they knew they had him in the armor because they they shot scenes. There are scenes of him wearing gotcha. a bunch of uh, stuff that they're going to put CGI over later. But uh, it again, I can't confirm any of that. But a, a prevailing theory mm. is that the reason that the rhino armor is now in the basement and it wasn't in the previous trailers is because it was changed at the last minute. Because there's also that running bit that pays off there at the end with this little kid who idolizes Spider-Man that exists throughout the movie only in insert shots that have no other characters from the movie, and are shot with a guy with a, a Spider-Man suit but not a visible Andrew Garfield. See what you're talking about. This production is ten times more interesting than the movie itself. And that's usually the case with bad films. Right. So back in uh, the beginning of 2013, we did a The Future of Star Wars episode where we were talking about the brand new mooted director, Matthew Vaughn. And like the moment that launched, it was uh, suddenly J.J. Abrams announced. So uh, let's let's put a pin in this one uh, and uh, just go off on all kinds of wild and crazy tangents of um, of what's most likely to happen with the Sony movies. Actually, let's not. Let's look at what it seems like they were going to be doing, because from, from what you say, it, it probably might not happen. If it was going to be Amazing 3, that would appear to be something wherein Venom gets pulled out. They've given Peter enough reason to be extremely angry at the end of Amazing 2. So then by the end of that movie, you've got Venom. So maybe they do the uh, the, the Venom birth scene from Spider-Man 3, only they then go, and then cut. And then that's the end of the movie. And then suddenly Venom gets his own spin-off in 2016, leading up to the Sinister Six. Now, the Sinister Six isn't a movie. And I know it's probably never going to be a movie now, if if, if, from what, if what we're uh, talking about is true. But we, were, I've been reading Ultimate Six just to go back to like the, you know, what the hell Bendis could do with this. The answer to that one is team up Spider Man and the Avengers to take down the Sinister Six. Hmm. And uh, we watched the Spectacular Spider Man episode where it naturally fell upon the Sinister Six. It's just six miserable gits sat around a table bickering about what they want. That's not a movie. <laughs> and then a series of action scenes. I mean, technically... Okay, go. Well, no, I, 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 I think I kind of dominated the last run. I don't want to, like, jump all over this one, because I, I agree. You know, that there's... I don't know where the movie is there. Okay, right. Uh, let me um, addendum this one. Uh, and I thought about this all after the podcast. So I'm having to add it in later. Okay, I can see the poster right now. If this was done right, the six of them in just regular clothes with little indicators as to who they are in a police lineup, all looking like surly motherfuckers. The usual suspects with supervillains. That is a fucking movie. 
you know, opening scene, they're all in jail together discussing how they got there and they're all, it's all because of Spider-Man and he becomes this kind of Kaiser Soze figure for them to all team up against. I mean, they're not likable, but they're relatable. A Spider-Man movie with Spider-Man as the antagonist. But that's the ballsy move you use to start your franchise. That's not the fifth film in an endless bombardment of Spider-Man. Six guys sat around a table, characterized as they have been in Amazing 2, say. Uh, uh, if you bring in Paul Giamatti and get him to deliver that performance. If you bring in Jamie Foxx and get him to deliver that performance. I can't picture six talented actors sat around with so little to say and so little to do being a good movie. I think what they're probably going to fall down on with that one, if... It goes in this ahead. hypothetical world, in this where hypothetical this universe where it actually happens, they there would seem to be a desire to try and replicate um, the Avengers on the bad guy side. But the mm. problem with that is that the reason the Avengers worked as a team up was you had the background for most of the characters already, with the possible exception of Hawkeye, even Black Widow. You had some characterization from Iron Man too. If you've only got a couple of them that anybody actually knows, there is no investment in the rest of the characters. <laughs> if you go to the IMDb and read the synopsis, it says six of mankind's great, six of mankind's greatest enemies form an alliance to destroy New York City and Spider-Man, whoever this may be. Um, that's not a movie. Well, I, I can see a, a villain movie working out not by the this particular production team but i can't see you know a simple romantic comedy working out from this particular production team these the 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 group that they've assembled are bad at what they do there's an episode of the the uh the the second justice league cartoon Mm -hmm. where they just I, i forget what it was called suicide squad uh, yes, where they just put a bunch of, you know, sort of B-list bad guys together and had them run basically a heist on the Justice League. On the watchtower, they go up there and it's actually, yeah, I remember it's from their point of view and they're terrified because the, they're surrounded by heroes yeah, who could tear them to pieces. It's, it's, it's Ocean's Eleven, but with yeah. comic book bad guys. Yeah. That is a movie. Absolutely. Now, I would want to see that movie. I could even see that movie with the Sinister Six because you know, Spider-Man bad guys, as conceived in the comics, usually they they tend to be kind of a sad sack bunch. Yeah, a couple of them, like the Green Goblin, have sort of like big ambitions. But most Spider-Man movie, like most Spider-Man bad guys, have a backstory of I was pretty much a dumb criminal or just some guy. Weird science stuff happened to me. I guess I'll rob a bank now. When uh, when Bendis writes D-list villains, suddenly they come alive. I've got a boner for Bendis, apologies. But, um, uh, yeah, when he does uh, them in New Avengers, when they're sat around griping at each other, that is, it may not be a movie, but it's something I want to see. I'm not sure what the rest of the world would really make of it. I'm not sure really how well that actually would fit with the family ethic that actually works best for, for selling Spider-Man. Drew Goddard was slash is pitched to direct this film. He of Cabin in the Woods. Bob, what did you think of Cabin? Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Loved Drew Goddard. Think he's a great talent. Love that movie. Uh, I don't want to see him waste his time with this, but I think <laughs> I think he's fantastic. That is at least somewhat intriguing of a directing uh, position. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was this Venom project? Uh, uh, that's uh, Alex Kurtzman. Oh, yeah. 
of, of the uh, Orsi Kurtzman duo is uh, slated to uh, direct and uh, presumably co-write the Venom movie. As I recall, you, you don't hate Kurtzman quite as much. Well, I don't think he and Orsi are particularly good at their job. You know, I mean, with Bob Orsi, it's, it's, they're, they're sort of a personal thing. I think he's an asshole. I'm from Boston. He's one of these people that's on about uh, the Boston Marathon bombing being a false flag by the Obama administration to take away freedoms and NSA. And I, You're going to need to explain this one for the British because I literally just found out about Truthers after Googling it after reading what film crit Hulk was saying about this film. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, to anyone in the UK, which is like half our listenership, what mm-hmm. the hell's a truther and why is Roberto Orsi being... A truther and a, from the sounds of it, a mad one at that, if there's such a thing as a sane one. Well, uh, why that, that troubles cinema? Well, I'll preface this by saying that I can't prove any of this because, um, after he got called out about this, um, his Twitter feed disappeared. Yeah, all of the online evidence, which used to be quite plentiful of Bob Orsi being a crazy person, got scrubbed. And I know this because I looked for it. Off the web. You can find, like, you, know, you can find people who will say so, you know, people who are, you know, um, Film Crit Hulk, who is, uh, works in the industry, but, um, operates under a, uh, a very successful pseudonym, you know, have no problem saying this in the, uh, in the pieces, and it's kind of an everyone knows thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'll preface this on that. It's like, no, if called to testify, I couldn't prove it. Gotcha. But, so, um, allegedly... Alleged, allegedly. Um, in the United States, we have people who, and I'm sure that every country has a version of this, the people who are obsessed with conspiracy theories. Here, they tend to be called truthers. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the people who mainly, they think that uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks were uh, an inside job, whether they were pulled off by the Bush administration in order to have an excuse to start a war with Iraq, or, you know, the really crazy people, which a certain person I may have just been talking about may be among, um, you know, they connect it to the broader, the Freemasons are trying to take over the world, the Trilateral Commission secretly runs the planet, uh, the Israeli government secretly controls the U.S. government and have black helicopters flying around to take gun rights and put fluoride in people's water for mind control. It's, uh, we're an interesting country. Mm-hmm. There's, we're big. That's what I feel like I have to explain to, you know, like not to excuse, but to explain how this happens with us to, to my, my, you know, my European listeners is we have whole states that are as big as some of your countries. Yeah. There's a lot of us and we can't keep track of everyone. So some of us are crazy. It's a continent, not a country. So and it's hard to manage. And it's, there's big spaces between this group of people and that group of people. Yeah, if, if you want to isolate yourself from humanity here, you don't have to be wealthy. You, you can just go to a place where no one is and put up a tent. Tea Party, as I was aware of. Berthas, I was also aware of. Most folks will have heard of the Tea Party. Berthas, for the, for the Brits out there. Uh, people, Bob, do you want to take this one? Um, well, the, the Tea Party is not a, a conspiracy group. They have, Nuts among them, every group does. Yeah. I was Party, just naming nuts, sorry. Well, well the, the, the Tea Party is, is just, it's the current name for our, um, very nationalist, very conservative, um, faction of, uh, of the government. The, the conservatives conservatives is, is the Tea Party. Though that's just a political movement. Um, birthers are very specifically people who believe that uh, President Obama was not born in the United States, and thus um, that's grounds for his impeachment. Well, it's it's grounds that they would have to remove him from presidency because 
um, legally he never could have run. Uh, you, you have to be a natural-born citizen or be the child of two national-born citizens. And has it been proved, or...? Um, the, uh, well, yeah, he produced his birth certificate. This is a non-issue. And the birthers are still going, or...? They're still going. It's, uh, wow. it, it's, well, the thing is, it's, it's come up a few times with other presidents. In this case, it comes up because he's a black man with a brown name. You know, if you want to call it what it is, it is. It's an easy way to, you know, give the people who just have some sense, I'm not racist, but I have some sense that there's something not us about this guy and give them something to hang that on. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's I love, not. I love the line, I'm not racist, but dot, 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 because there's nothing good that can come out of your mouth at that point. Yeah, well, if, if you don't follow the Yes, That's Racist Twitter feed, uh, go ahead and follow that. Nice. I, I don't want to be depressed. Sorry, but <laughs> I don't. So, uh, well, for, 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 the, for the tangent, one of the people who writes the, the Spider-Man, the, the Orsi Kurtzman team, is at the very least a very devout conspiracy theorist. You can see it in a lot of his work. I don't particularly care for him. Alex Kurtzman, he's written a lot of bad screenplays. I don't know who he is as a person. Maybe he's a good director. I don't know. He hasn't directed a movie yet. You know, Orsi's we'll just been uh, drafted on... This is going to date as well if he gets knocked off it. Orsi has been uh, drafted as director of Star Trek Three. Yeah, he wants, uh, he, he wants to direct the third Star Trek. Mm-hmm. He'll, he'll probably get it. He's got a lot of clout. He's made a lot of money for people. Possibly a reason why they took anything that was severely actionable off the internet. Yeah, that would that would be the one. Is it worth it? Um, so I suppose, yeah, that they, ultimately having the courage of your convictions is maybe not quite as uh, important as, uh, as having an extremely lucrative screenwriting and possibly directing career. Okay, so I've just realized the five guys in a lineup thing is exactly how they pitched Guardians of the Galaxy. I have no originality, folks. Either that or it's a fucking good idea. Back to the whole Aussie thing. Something else, though, that's uh, occurred to me when I was just when I was looking at his previous work, he he tends to be given enormous franchises, and usually, if something significant happened, usually a death, possibly a death and rebirth happened within that particular franchise, he'll do it in one movie. I hadn't noticed this one before, but uh, I assume you remember um, Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen. Yep. Optimus Prime dies, brought back to life. That's done. So the whole like that thing happening in the movie and then um, Hasbro going back on it several seasons later. Yeah. That in one movie. He got better. I'm not going to spoil Star Trek Into Darkness for anyone who hasn't seen it, although if you haven't, I should spoil it because you should have seen it by now. Obviously something major happens in that film that's like one of the easiest things you could do if you're writing Star Trek and then something else happens in that film which references another very memorable Star Trek moment and is again corrected by the end so that it's all done and neatly wrapped up by the end. And then in Amazing Spider-Man 2, Gwen Stacy dies, Peter gets over it, apparently, within minutes. I dread to think what would happen if Orsi got hold of remaking the original Star Wars. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Mm-hmm. 
never join you! If you only knew the power of the dark side, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough! He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. honestly don't know how much of any of the movies these guys are known for writing plot wise to hang on them because in and this is industry inside baseball stuff but when you see writers especially writing teams uh like uh miles and lar like um uh the um teddy rossio and uh the other person who uh, works with him, whose name is blowing out of my mind right now, and uh, Orsi and Kurtzman, who are no longer working together. They've uh, they've gone their separate ways professionally. I don't know what's what's up with that, but now they're on projects that the other is not on. When you see writers who tend to become popular blockbuster franchise guys and get a lot of work and get the final screenwriting credit on the movie, um, they tend to be guys whose skill is listening to the producers and the directors and doing whatever dumb thing they want to do. Mm-hmm. Rather that, than coming up with ideas on their own. Well, I'm sure they have ideas of their own, but... Major uh, plot moving, like, the the theme and the plot of the film. Well, yeah. Well, I, 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 when it comes to writing a movie like, like this... A movie like Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2 the story meeting for that movie is also going to include the marketers and the data guys and the international guys. So you might have a person there saying, okay, this is what needs to happen dramatically for this beat and this beat. But you're also going to have a guy who is there saying, okay, um, such and such actor want really wants uh, that we need to come back for the next movie. Wants a scene where he gets to show that he's good at card tricks or something. So find a way to shove that in there. And someone else is going to say, okay, can we get uh, can we get a part for someone Russian in the movie because Russia is really big into this? Can we find a way to set part of this in China? Uh, part of Transformers Four is set in China. 
Jesus. You know, can we can we find a way to do that? If uh, folks at home aren't thinking, maybe we should rastify him by ten percent. <laughs> they should be exactly, exact, exactly. And um, in the case of this one, uh, it's complicated because Sony doesn't actually have merchandising rights to Spider-Man. They only have the movies. Marvel- that I found out today reading your work. So yeah. that amazed the shit out of me because if if this film is incredibly successful and all the kids buy the toys, that is an own goal. They're feeding Disney. And that's why Sony has to keep telling their investors that we're going to make seven more of these because that's the only thing they can tell them. They can't tell them, you know, we're going to have the number one Halloween costume this year because they won't. Disney does. And that, but in in any other project, that guy is in the meeting, and the T-shirt people are in the meeting, and the poster guy is in the meeting, and all and they're all throwing out ideas of what they think should be in the movie, and a lot of the guys who are successful in writing screenplays for blockbusters and getting rehired to do it, they're not the guys who can write them well, story-wise. They're the guys who can convincingly say, yes, Mr. Executive, I am listening to you. That's a fantastic idea, and I will find a way to get it into this movie, which is how you end up with movies with random villain appearances, and it's how you end up with movies like this, where scenes just happen that don't mean anything because some guy figured it would be a good idea and you end up with scenes where you can have a character die that should be the end of the movie, and then the movie goes on because someone else says, but that's sad. You know, it, it's that's how you end up with this. So, like, I, I will blame them up and down for, you know, a bad screenplay, but in terms of trying to look at who they are and figure out why they might be fixated on certain themes, I don't know that they are fixated on certain themes. They could just be listening to a lot of the same advice. So if it's not specifically Bob Orsi, then there is a, a mode of thinking spe- that seems to be quite prevalent in Hollywood right now, where it's like, right, if we're going to reprise these themes that have occurred in previous movies, let's get it done and dusted in one film, because we don't know what's coming around the corner. Deliver the whole package. Yeah, that sounds about right. Which is at odds with all of this, like, seeding this mystery plot the whole way through. Especially yeah. since, as you've said it, they kind of broke the structure up and rewrote the damn thing so that the mystery plot kind of gets abandoned. They, they cut Mary Jane out of the movie. Yeah. Uh, Shailene Woodley shot a bunch of scenes playing Mary Jane to set her up for the next movie. And, uh, and uh, they, they cut her out because they thought it wasn't working. <laughs> There's a gif right now of uh, Captain America running past um, Falcon and saying, on your left, and he's got a little Marvel badge above him, and uh, Falcon's got a little DC badge. And it's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Sony were on the far right and stumbled into the water. Mm-hmm. Some slightly heartening thing that I, I read from you was uh, that... Sony are effectively just renting this from Marvel. They're going to have to give it back at some point, which gives more of a sort of a, 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 a long-term overview of this as being a sort of a temporary thing rather than something which can be run into the ground. Because if they do too bad a job on it, they've got to give it up. Well, eventually it goes back to more. Even if these were successful, eventually Disney takes this back. Disney is huge. Movies are what they do. Sony's movie business is not doing very well. They're, they're relying on Spider-Man and James Bond to always be a hit, and it's diminishing returns. Eventually, these things go back where they belong. That's just law of nature. Hmm. But, uh, like right now, 
I uh, every, everyone online is now saying, oh, the movie is doing really bad financially. You know, Disney's going to swoop in and take it back. Why? <laughs> like, 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 why would they want it right now? They'd yeah. be they'd be spending pretty good money for a franchise that's doing poorly. That's why? what I said when I, when it came up with the whole uh, Sony are predicting one billion. Why would you predict this if you aim a bit lower? Then you can at least hit a slightly more, like, closer mark and go, yeah, okay, well, Spider-Man's doing okay. And, we'll, and at least then if you have to neg- enter negotiations, you've got a point of strength. Yeah, at this point, doesn't you just have to sit back and go, okay, carry on. It's on your left. Yeah. <laughs> this business is very strange in that boasting is like unrealistic boasts are the way you keep a job in a lot of cases mm. because there's a lot of assumption that the major executive guy that you're making that boast to will no longer be in that position by the time you actually have to make good on it. Jesus. And and Sony, and this is not just a Sony problem. The the Avengers put the fear of God into a lot of other studios in in terms of these because they look at this as thus far an unbreakable business model. I, I mean, like you have six, five or six movies that all came out and did. Pretty good. The Iron Man movies did great. The others did pretty good. And then Avengers came out and makes a billion dollars. 1.5 right now. $1.5 billion worldwide. Huge hit. And then all of these sequels to the other movies that did pretty good all do like twice as well. Like Thor 2, twice as much money as Thor 1. Iron Man 3, huge improvement on Iron Man 2 box office wise. Captain America... You know, sixty million dollars for the first one opening weekend, almost a hundred million. Um, you know, ninety-five million uh, for the second one. Yeah. The rest of the industry looks at this and and is like gnashing teeth, going, "Why can't we have that?" You know, we we own toys and dolls and things. Why don't we have that? And every studio out there right now is trying to find a way to create a model of this of their own, where instead of just making sequels to everything, you're trying to squish stuff together. Universal wants to do it with the Universal Monsters. They, they, they God, want... Yeah. They, there was they, word on Disney like doing like a, a Princess Avengers as well. I, I, it would shock me if, if Disney was not, uh, w- w- didn't, didn't pull that trigger eventually. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know what's stopping them. But uh, other than that it might be a terrible idea. But I don't know why that Disney Infinity is not a movie already. It'll get there. Yeah. You know, uh, well, also Pixar still owns all their own stuff, and they're usually pretty adamant about not doing crossover stuff. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. And, you know, if you can't do it with Toy Story, I don't know why they'd want to do it. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. That, that's what they want. But, yeah, no, that, that wasn't just me speculating. Universal uh, wants to do uh, The Mummy, Dracula, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and then... Some oh, sort of that is already a movie. It's called The Monster Squad, and it's possibly good. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, all, well. To be fair, Universal invented this back in the '40s, where they had the Universal monsters, where they had all their you know movies. Then you had Dracula versus Frankenstein. Uh, no, uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Then you had House of Frankenstein, House mm-hmm. of Dracula. Actually, a, a Monster Squad grown up is a movie I would pay to see. As, they as, as kind of did it with Van Helsing, didn't they? Mm. Yeah, that was unfortunate. Mm. Um, okay, another thing regarding the whole making stuff by committee, that 
this isn't really anything to complain about because it's so pointless and forgettable. But it just it's just as a as a perfect example of confusing marketing. Did you guys get an X Men clip at the end of your uh, screening of uh, Amazing Spider Man Two? I'm trying to think. No, I didn't because I was at a critic screening and it uh, wasn't there yet. Uh, we did. Uh, it's just a, a, like a, 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 a ninety seconds of Raven um, kicking some ass in Cuba. Uh, yeah, it's, it's obviously a fight scene. We've seen a dozen of them before with uh, with Raven, but there's none of that tension build up, which is kind of the point of those fights. So it's uh, and it's literally two seconds after the credits roll. So uh, uh, the way I equated it was: you've just finished a meal, even if it's not a particularly good meal. You're expecting the after dinner mint, which would normally be coming in the next movie, and instead someone plops a ladle full of goulash in front of you and goes, "There you go," uh, or not even a ladle, a spoonful. Eat that. It, it's it's a bit of another movie. It's a bit of another meal. It's it's not a, it's not for being right here. This is something to do with Sony owing Fox a solid. This this was um, the the official word on that, uh, which didn't come out until afterwards and not in an official announcement. It was just sort of you know someone dug it up and asked, and they said yeah, kinda. The deal was that Mark Webb, who has directed the first uh, two Amazing Spider-Man movies, mm-hmm. uh, is not signed for number three yet, uh, and uh, he was scheduled. He had some kind of commitment to do something at Fox in the near future. Sony wanted to keep him for the Spider-Man movies and uh, went to Fox, and Fox said, oh, yeah, we'll let him out of the contract. Just let us advertise X-Men for free at the end of Spider-Man. <sighs> Just, I mean, that was, pu- that was pulled up by Lindsay Nagel and the rest of the crew in The Simpsons at some meeting of, ah, uh-huh. This is what kids like at the movies. They like seeing our other uh, superhero movies. Yeah, for some, for related superhero movies. Well, Fox is uh, the only studio right now more terrified of an upcoming uh, movie's box office than than Sony is. Yeah, they they are shaking in their boots over this X Men movie, which a month or so ago looked like even if it was bad, and I don't think it'll be bad. I think it looks pretty good. I, I think they were thinking this is a surefire hit, and then some other stuff happened. Uh huh. Which is, you know, it, it, oh God, it's such tabloid bullshit, and I hate even dignifying it. But it's there, so. But they will blame any uh, any negative impact of this movie on that. Something I am not 
on a, on a, let's, let's, let's bring it back with some happiness, shall we? Let's, uh, just going back to these the hypothetical six movies we got there. Um, Andrew Garfield uh, allegedly is uh, out after Amazing 3, if that happens at all, uh, which would, considering Venom comes after that, suggest a refocus on Venom for the series. Then you've got the Sinister Six. Uh, you you suggested a new Spider-Man. You want to go into detail on that for the folks who haven't heard of him? Well, and this was just me being hypothetical. I mean, uh, you know, part of this was was a dig because people have asked them about this, and Avi Arad, who is the guy who more or less is the Spider-Man producer, mm-hmm. uh, he used to be the head of Marvel. He took off to run only Spider-Man. Turns out to have not been a great decision on his part. Um, he uh, he has said that that. For those who do not follow um, Ultimate Marvel Comics, which I don't blame you, most of them are terrible, um, Marvel has a, a separate universe called Ultimate Marvel, which was started in the late 90s and was supposed to be new stories without, you know, buoyed down by continuity where anything can happen. Uh, not much happened. But uh, a little while ago, they decided to do something actually interesting. Uh, they killed off ultimate Peter Parker, uh, and replaced him with a, uh, a new younger Spider-Man who is uh, half black, half Latino. His name is Miles Morales. And, uh, he is actually a very fun character. And, uh, you know, I just sort of, you know, softball pitched it out, uh, you know, in this article because no one in the industry is reading my article. Come on. <laughs> you know, is, uh, you know, it, who am I? But I said, you know, if they're going to lose Andrew Garfield in general, why not, you know, do something, shake it up big, you know, find a young kid to play uh, Miles Morales and make him Spider-Man, and then you would have, you know, yes, people would freak out. It happens. You know, the Human Torch is black in the next uh, Fantastic Four movie, and uh, people are losing their minds. <laughs> was that a deliberate joker? Yes, it was. It was good. Thank you. Be- people are going nuts. Because it's that- not all... Part of the plan, exactly, and it's and it's not uh, it's not how it was in the comics, which they seem to be okay with on some stuff. But you know, recast a white person with a black person, and suddenly, you know, it's the end of the world. They're taking over. Where's his birth certificate? I cannot wait for Chiwetel Ejiofor to get the Bond role because I want to see what the Daily Mail say the next day. They will say something along the lines of, "If you're thinking what we're thinking." <laughs> Yeah, the great big I, picture of Chiwetel's brilliant face. Yeah, it, it, I, I would, li- I would, I would like to see that. I, I would like to see uh, really anything. But I mean, even this would not be recasting Peter Barker. This would be pulling in a character from the comics who already is black, who who just wears this costume. But uh, you know, I, I think it would be a huge thing. They'd get all kinds of press. They'd be putting Marvel in a really tough spot mm. because if Marvel gets it back, do you change back? Do you do? A whole bunch of other things, but, uh, you know. Spider-Men. Now, Avi Arid, the Spider-Man guy, has already said, no, we're not gonna do that as far as I'm concerned. Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Could they bring in Ricochet? Yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) it's. You read that arc, Jesus. Poor Andrew Garfield, you know, who is now stuck in these things, he said he's out after three. Clearly, at the time, that was a signal that he plans to, you know, be hard about renegotiating his contract. But now That's it might it. actually be kind of smart. Yeah, now now that people know who I am, you can pay me what I'm worth. Yeah. He doesn't want to wind up like, you know, poor Jennifer Lawrence, you know, who was making her Winter's Bone money when she signed on for the X-Men. 
and now she's stuck in the blue makeup in two of these movies, and a year later, she's like the biggest female star on the planet because of Hunger Games, mm. and and should be getting paid a lot more for this series. Right. Same, same, like they'll never get Shailene Woodley back, who was supposed to play Mary Jane in this series. Now she's earning divergent bucks. Right, right, and they're going to have to actually pay her for the next couple. Mm. And I'm assuming they're particularly reticent regarding actresses on this front. More or less, yeah, because they're they're considered interchangeable until they get cast. Yes. No, it's uh, it's un- like I'm sure they've got Felicity Jones who plays Felicia Hardy in this movie, uh, Spider-Man Two, for no reason. I'm, I'm sure they've got her for at least two movies because she's Man, introduced old- my assistant, Felicia <laughs> Hardy. Wink. Yeah. <laughs> it's very unfortunate. So maybe she'll be in the next one. I don't know. It it would not surprise me if they got to at least the next third movie. Yeah, I mean, I, they they might push and push and push with this one. Again, going back to the Sinister Six thing, I, I thought, right, if all three villains in this movie attack Spidey all at once, he's fucking dead. No two it, ways about it. Let's face yeah. it. So if six attacked him at once, he's dead three times. Yeah. So, again, how do you do a movie with that? Okay, so, spitballing, maybe Venom is one of the Sinister Six, and because I've heard it's a redemption story, Venom decides to be a goodie in the Sinister Six. So then suddenly it's five versus two, not quite so bad. They're watching each other's backs. Maybe they bring in Miles Morales as well. Who knows? I don't know. I I really doubt they have a script or a story for it yet, other than... I, I I don't think the script notes for Sinister Six are anything other than keep telling the investors whenever they ask, where's our Avengers? Here's your big team-up movie. I think it's a stick figure drawing. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> On a napkin. They haven't, they haven't even officially decided who's in it yet. Mm. You know, I mean, there is no Sinister Six. It's usually like there's there's a there was an original Sinister Six, and then it was changed, and it was changed again, and it's like there's gonna be Doctor Octopus and Vulture probably. I yeah. can't help thinking that they've got some poor assistant in a back room somewhere plugged into Twitter and just could just look to see what the fans are saying they want and Rocket copy Racer all that is into trending. a script. <laughs> it's like Puma now. It's like Puma. I would not want to have that guy's job because you have to keep going back to them and saying. Well, so and so is at ten uh, percent. So and so is at five percent. Please don't do this. Uh, maintain ninety percent for uh, the past seven weeks. So still got that. Jesus. Okay, right. So let's bring it back. And uh, uh, Sharon, any predictions on on this one before we go to the uh, the hypothetical? I don't know. I I can't think like Sony, and I'm quite glad of that fact. <laughs> quite honest with you. Flavor sauce. Mm. Okay, so, Bob, let's just say, hypothetically, Sony calls you up on the blower and give you full creative control of the Spider-Man license. (laughs) (laughs) Smart aleck answers aside, what would you do with it? Uh, Well, I would... uh, Well, I'd cast around for new writers. Okay. Uh, Probably cast around for for other actors, you know, people who are not going to be super expensive in the near future. You know, going by the plan that they have right now, I mean... Like, there's a whole lot of, like, fanboy-type stuff that I could say. It's like, oh, yeah, I want to see uh, Jack-O-Lantern and uh, Taskmaster in the movie or or stuff like that. But, you know, that's that's all incidentals. You know, you can put, you know, whoever cool thing you want in there. If you don't do it well, yeah. it's not going to matter. You know, I would say let's not do a Venom movie because I just don't think there's a movie there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it still feels like they have Spider-Man because they want to make Venom. 
you know, because whoever's there is, whoever is making these decisions is still firmly living in like the late 90s when, oh, of course you make a Venom movie. Venom is awesome. But Venom's only awesome because Todd McFarlane drew him, and he's thus only awesome in, like, 1991. Yeah, it's not a good character, and I I, I would not be surprised that they make Spider-Man 3 because I think they have to make that to make Venom. Yeah. And I, I think they at least make Spider-Man 3 and then Venom before they call it uh, before they call it a day on this. Are you getting deja vu on this one? Wasn't Avi Arad the one who was pushing for Venom in Spider-Man 3? The yeah, other Spider-Man 3. Yeah. Yeah, he was. And, that, and look how that worked out for them. Mm. And and they still they haven't learned. Well, well, they also never. Even when they had the Sam Raimi movies go under, you know, they said, "Well, we don't know about Spider-Man Four, but Red we Morris. are doing Venom. We are doing Venom." All right. And uh, and so That's really, why we blew him up twice. Yeah. Well, Venom's made of goo, though. He can he can be in anything. I just I That's don't. Exactly see what him. I said. There's just a tiny bit of goo left over, and suddenly you got your Venom movie. The details aren't what's wrong with this. The the very basic stuff is yeah. wrong with this. It's you like that you're being handed a house made out of jelly, and they're saying, what kind of wallpaper would you put on this house? Yeah, it's, you know, like, I, I can't even do, like, the fan speculation thing for these, because, you know, so what? I'd say, yeah, I'd love, you know, like, in this one, I was like, would you like to see Electro and Rhino in a Spider-Man movie? Yeah! Not like this. So first of all, get it structurally sound. I mean, yeah. I, 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 off the top of my head, I would scrap this continuity as it is. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, fucking no one cares. Mm-hmm. I, I could be wrong, but I have not heard anyone go, when are we going to find out the answer to these, this mystery? Yeah, nobody cares. People tolerate it. They're not gripped by it, as far as I can tell. Tell us if you are, folks. Yeah, no one cares about Richard Parker's <laughs> spider research. <laughs> Oh, and they were supposed to be done with it by the end of the first movie. Yeah, it was the untold story, remember? Well, yeah, in the in the first movie, the guy was supposed to show up alive at the end of the movie. I don't think they ever shot it. Mm. But in their in their original script, supposedly, uh, you know, Richard Parker is supposed to show up alive at the end of the movie and say oh. he's been in hiding and give him the great power, great responsibility thing, and that's the end of the goddamn movie. But they realized that the spider the, the the conspiracy story wasn't working in the first one, so they took most of it out and it just becomes Spider Man and Dennis Leary fighting the lizard. You know, everything really did point towards the idea of, of Park Richard being still alive. And I, I I thought that that might be a thing in this and then they were like, No, 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 he's totally fucking dead. He crashed in a plane. You know, he crashed in a plane and he has a secret bat cave under the subway with Subway tokens and information that could have been easily communicated any other way. But, of course, he could also have injected himself with a vial of blah, 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 which means he survived the plane crash. And, you know, yeah. Because Peter has special blood that makes him special, which means this is not a random coincidence and we've completely lost the uh, the threat of this character being in a random chance. And See, these people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> So yeah, uh, th- th- okay. This was not originally intended to be a total beatdown on the Amazing series, but uh, like I said, the, in terms of what doesn't work, the continuity as it stands now means that you could technically reboot Spider-Man, and Sony could reboot it again. And I don't think it would necessarily be seen as weakness. I mean, with what Universal did with uh, the Incredible Hulk and what this was technically supposed to be, you just go, right, so Peter Parker is Spider-Man, he's about yay old, he had Gwen Stacy as a girlfriend, 
and then she died. So that all happened to him. And this is the continuing story of him. But let us never speak of this fucking mystery again. Yeah, I think that I think a soft reboot, I think, is what they could do. And maybe you could also like recast the whole thing so people are fairly certain that it's like it's a new universe, but other things sort of apply. And you can also achieve a lot with an, uh, an early montage where you get stuff laid out, and it's like the Spider-Man now. And but you just ever so slightly contradict the first two so that people are like, okay, right, new universe, but at the same time, these things happen. You can, I mean, people are smart. They can tell that sort of stuff. And you can even just, you know, mention it in press releases. It's it's kind of a parallel universe or some shit. Yeah, the, the Incredible Hulk did it, did it just fine. You know, yeah. it's kind of a sequel, but not really. It's, you know, if nothing else, you can just start from everyone knows who Spider-Man is. Yeah. He doesn't need to... Oh. For the love of Christ, do not show us the origin again, please. Okay? Okay. We've had that. Thank you very much. Um, okay, well, if it was me, ideally, I would, uh, you know, and I have control of it, of course I'd give Marvel a, a call and go, right, I've got this Spider-Man license. I give this to you. Can I be in on the meetings when you talk about what's happening up until the year 2028, please? <laughs> because they seem so sure and steady. Even the films that aren't actually all that fantastic, Fill the Dark World, I've, I've, I've held this up as the opposite of Amazing Spider-Man. Chugs along, it achieves roughly what it sets out to do, it's very appealing to 12-year-old boys, but there's nothing really all that terrible about it. Mm. Um, whereas for me, Amazing 2 had the peaks and troughs. I, for me, the, the Peter and Gwen stuff, and for Sharon as well, peaks. And then... Everything to do with Electro and most of the stuff to do with Harry and pretty much everything else was just trough, trough, trough. So in its unevenness, it's actually a bit more remarkable to me than just a perfunctory movie. But I, I am done with how this is going. Uh, and Mark Webb, I want him to not direct Spider-Man movies. I want him to be a successful drama director because that's what he does well, but Christ. It needs to be in a steady hand of, of a, a grown-up director who has handled action and drama in the past. Well, someone's head has to roll here for for the for what number two is doing at the box office, which is and I mean and it, it's the cumulative effect of everything else. Mm. The box office is going to be down. Like the new <sighs> the new story on Monday is is that Zac Efron kicked Spider Man's ass. <laughs> what did Zac Efron do in this uh, in this movie? In the, oh, okay, gotcha. He um you know the story on that and oh, he's God, that's the, him. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't you recognize him. That? No, no, no. Okay, he, he, has, he has grown up a lot. Okay, but uh, no, he he is in uh, Neighbors, and he is the story coming out of Neighbors is holy shit, the kid from High School Musical is going to be a movie star. Gotcha, because he's oh, really yeah. good. Everybody on the British side of the Atlantic, I worked out while we were doing this podcast that this movie Neighbors they're talking about is called Bad Neighbors in this country. <sighs> because the studio, pandering to the Brits again, don't want it to get confused with... Neighbors. Everybody needs good neighbors. Just a friendly wave each morning. Helps to make a better day. And for Americans who've never had the pleasure, Australian soap, kind of like Days of Our Lives, I suppose... Huge over here in the early 90s. Bigger than hula hoops. Bigger than hula hoops? You know, you've got that news story coming in. You've got eventually the fact that you're losing money, that you're going to end up with less money than the first one. You know, these are all headlines that build up. And the next one goes into production 
with hanging over its head, you know, you had two movies that didn't work so far, why are you still doing this? And you've got to have an answer for that in the press. Usually the answer for a studio is to shit can a writer, a director, a producer, an actor, someone like that, and then let it implicitly be, yeah, we know, but that guy's gone, and now we're going in another direction. You know, the the tra- Transformers 4 is coming out with only Michael Bay and the Transformers themselves returning. Yeah. You know, Shia LaBeouf is gone, Megan Fox is off making Ninja Turtles, you know, it's a whole other thing. So it's being, without having to explicitly say it, you know, the overriding theme in the press is, yeah, we know about the other three, but LaBeouf is gone, so we're fine now. That's like, that's like doing episode two and going, oh, it's okay, Jar Jar's gone. But I mean, uh, the thing is, will they let Mark Webb go off onto another movie when they just basically gave a bunch of free money to Fox to keep him on for number three. Yeah. So, so I don't know. You know, Kurtzman they can't get rid of because he's making Venom. Uh, you know, Avi Arad comes attached to Spider-Man, so you can't do that. I don't know what, uh, what they could do to symbolically say to the audience, this is not a full continuation of this thing you didn't like the first two times. There is a meta story emerging here of a real-life Sinister Six who hate each other and can't get away from each other but have to keep trying to take over and destroy New York somehow. In, this, in, in that analogy, the superhero that is being waited for is named uh, Daniel Loeb, who is, uh, uh, owns of, he's an investor, he owns a huge stake in uh, Sony Entertainment. And uh, last year, when Sony had two huge movies, mm-hmm. both bomb at the box office, uh, After Earth, which was a Ooh. tremendous dud, and uh, White House Down, which underperformed, which I thought was a good movie, but did underperform, uh, he went to, he's what's known as an activist investor mm-hmm. um, in terms of the way he approaches the company. He went to the industry press and filed a bunch of stories and public statements saying, you know, the people who do, who run the Sony Entertainment Division don't know what they're doing. My company should sell the Entertainment Division, get rid of all these properties, and do something else movie-wise. Um, he will probably have something more to say about this one. I can imagine him saying, one billion? Are you fucking kidding? And the thing is, you can fire all the executives you want. The public doesn't know who they are. They don't care. Yeah, you know da- Daniel Loeb is mad at the Spider-Man movies is not a story to the general public. Jesus, it's terrifying if you work for Sony. But uh, I don't know what they can do. They you know like let Andrew Garfield out of his contract. I don't know. They are looking for a, a whipping boy, a scapegoat, a public pinata at this stage. Yeah, let's just say that, that they're looking for one anyway. If they if unless they perform spectacularly this weekend. I, my assumption would be that the first thing that they'll go on is, you know what? We took a risk. We made a dark movie with a downer ending and people responded negatively to that. I, I, I think that will be the, uh, like, uh, like a face saving word on Sony's behalf is the reason the box office went down is that people went home and told their friends that Gwen dies and it's sad. Because that was the problem with Spider-Man 3. Harry dies and it's sad. There was no other problems. Well, in in that one, they just agreed with the audience that it was too many villains. But that was only later because everyone forgets Spider-Man 3 
is the most popular Spider-Man movie, yeah. box office-wise. Huge, huge hit. Bigger than the first one, bigger than the second one, bigger than either of these. What are your theories on why that is, by the way? Because I can't... Fa- I, 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 my only reasoning is that Spider-Man 2 was rediscovered on DVD and people were like, no, 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 it's even better than the first one. So the third one's going to be even better than that. Um, they mentioned it in Knocked Up. You know, I, I, I think three Spider-Man 3 had... You know, the build-up from the previous two movies, you know, there was the sense we're going to pay off all of this story. It had been a while since Spider-Man 2, and a lot of people were, you know, oh boy, you know, this is, uh, you know, the here we go, Peter and Mary Jane and Harry, yeah, we're going to find out what's up. It had great trailers. Yeah, at the time Spider-Man 3 came out, like, Sp- Spider-Man 1 was like 2000, 2001. 2002. 2002. Okay, yeah, I have to. You have to timestamp that because I know it was right after 9/11. Yeah, you know, Spider-Man three um, was like 07, I think. Uh, Spider-Man three is 07, and Spider-Man two is 04. Right. So I mean, that's close to uh, you know within a decade of movies, but it's still a while. And uh, you know, they're selling this is the return of the Jedi for Spider-Man, and it, it, it made uh, it made <laughs> to a money. degree it is. <laughs> it, it it made uh, it made very big money, and uh, and that's. That's where that was, but uh, you know, I don't. I don't know what uh, what happens now. I don't. I, I wonder if Twitter had been as huge in '07 if Spider-Man Three wouldn't have been as good. And by good, I mean vastly, undeservedly successful. A lot of people are being swayed. It would appear mainly because that most of my interaction happens on Twitter and message boards. Either I'm not saying this. People are saying it's shite, or. I actively want this series to fail. I'm voting with my wallet. That makes sense. I uh, I, I can't speak to it, but that makes sense. Because, I mean, people were coming out of three going, ugh. And then everyone else was going, I think I'll be the judge of what's good. Yeah. And even though it got critically mauled, they were going anyway, belligerently. It made more than any of the rest of them. or any More than any of them. <sighs> anyway. So I think, uh, again, if I had uh, the uh, license to, you know, if I had hands on the license for Spider-Man, I would say, whatever we do for the next film, get Seth Rogen's blessing first. <laughs> <laughs> maybe cast Seth Rogen as Peter Parker. I don't know, maybe that would be... <laughs> Before we carry on, I will just say that Marvel must surely have a flip chart at Marvel HQ where it's like, right, this is what we're doing until 2028. And then there's like a an alternate reality which skews off if Sony approached them at any point along this route with, do you want Spider-Man? Or even if Fox approached them with, do you want X-Men? we got two alternate realities. Fox actually seems less likely because they've got 
immense popularity tenure and already laid down well-established continuity with the X-Men series. But it's possible maybe they can lend them a few characters. Have the X-Men in more than one universe? I mean, Stranger Things have happened, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch. And of course there's the Fantastic Four, which they're just starting out with, could take a while longer for them to decide against. But I'm betting Sony's going to blink first. Anyway, my guess is that on this hypothetical flowchart that Disney have, there are various accommodations and alternate plans for when wandering licenses, or should we say prodigal licenses, are reacquired. Brought back to the group where they were created and where they belong. There are arguments to be made that one big studio shouldn't control every Marvel property, but I haven't heard one that's as solid as the movies Marvel have been putting out. Because, as you mentioned, that they they seem to be kind of working on the fly with how they develop the Avengers films, and Loki became the big bad in uh, Avengers because everybody loved him in Thor, but that he could easily have been switched out for Red Skull if everyone went Red Skull crazy, which was an actual disease during the Crimean War. I think Marvel has goalposts. Seems to be the way that they're doing this, mm-hmm. but uh, you know they 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 cast their movies, and again, this isn't going to work for every studio's version of this because Marvel has a certain tone that is very broad and goofy, and anything can happen. So it works out for them. I think that um, they know where things need to be at various points, but I also think they can fit things in pretty regularly. Like if they if they got Spider Man back next week. They would probably have a movie ready to go within two years. Mm-hmm. Is probably like a good wait time. And they also probably have it mapped out. I'm sure they've got like ways to get him in there. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, they also have to take into account that, you know, are they buying something that no one wants? Yeah, box office poison. Because you know, for fans, you know, they'll look at it and go, "Oh my god, yes, yes, we want Peter Parker to show up at the press conference and take Tony Stark's picture." You know, and we we want this very very badly, but. Uh, you look at um, general audiences, at this point, are they going to be looking at this and saying, oh, hey, there's Spider-Man again. I'm tired of him. Yeah. Do we ease him in and have him do a bit? In fact, yeah. Make him like the Hulk for a while. Make him a guest star rather than stick him in his own movies for a bit. He, He clearly needs a bit of a rest. Or, and I can't believe I didn't think this while I was podcasting, that's what Warner Brothers are doing with Batman. Because uh, this is Spider-Man 5. Let's, let's face it, to the general public, they don't yeah. care that it was rebooted. In fact, having it rebooted confuses them. As far as they're concerned, Spider-Man has been facing a succession of villains since 2002. That's why they barely went into the differences between this Harry and the Harry we've already known for three movies. Yeah. I think the main reason this isn't going to do too well is people are just kind of tired of it. It's just the same story every single time. I mean, they, they, they move the pieces around, and in this one, they actually killed his girlfriend. Sony wants to not lose the rights to a popular character. I actually think their original plan of let's just do a, a, a really, really low-budget Twilight-level Spider-Man wouldn't have... Just like, I mean, you'd have hated it. Most pe- most fans probably would have hated it for what it had become. 
but it might have got an inadvertent teenage girl audience, and I think that Spider-Man can can take a bit of adaptation in the same way as Batman can. The upside of this would be inexpensive films focusing on the drama, and hopefully, if written by a close-knit team, spinning out a multi-part story based on developing characters' responses to one another rather than action set pieces could be a much-needed deepening of the Spider-Man brand in the eyes of the public. The downside of that are that it wouldn't have sold many toys, and while Sony would see no benefit either way, it might well alienate small children, thus breaking that stipulated law of Spidey that I mentioned before. Also, aiming at the Twilight crowd could be a dicey move, as marketers see the fictional girls in these pigeonholes as fickle, jumping from Twilight to Fifty Shades to Hunger Games to Divergent, as opposed to male comic fans who tend to stick with characters they love for life. In reality, there are plenty of girls who still love Twilight and plenty of men who look back on their Spawn collection in the 1990s and shake their heads. But that's the conundrum. In any case, it's not the way they went, but I would still like to see those alternate universe, low-budget Spider-Man dramas. The only thing I was going to add, actually, was uh, with regards to um, what I would hypothetically do with it were it up to me. Mm. Um, Although... When we were talking about this before, I said that I, I thought the reboot kind of needed to go back to him in his high school guise. Um, one version of Spider-Man that I always really enjoyed in the comics was him as an older man mm. going back as a teacher to impart all the things he'd learned to the next generation. And I think that kind of fits with what you were saying about uh, he needs a he needs to have a bit of a... Um, to lay low for a little while, basically, maybe guest on a few things before he actually takes part in anything significant. So maybe something like he's a high school teacher. He used to be Spider-Man when he was a kid, but he hung up the costume because things went bad and gradually works his way into getting back into it. I'd certainly like to see Peter like Parker as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, if we... <sighs> If we try him as a high schooler, we're going to be touching on the fucking origin again. Yeah. Yeah. If folks want to track you down, where should they go? Uh, I am uh, the film critic for EscapistMagazine.com. Uh, you can find me there on Fridays with Escape to the Movies and on Tuesdays with The Big Picture. Also have uh, columns called Intermission and High Def, which are about movies and TV run on the same site. Uh, you can check out my blog, which has you know rundowns of everything at uh, MovieBob.blogspot.com and The Game Overthinker, which runs on Blip, affiliated with ScrewAttack. Thank you very much to uh, both of you guys. Thank you. Bob. Thank you. Uh, so I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And neural, neural handshake, handshake complete. complete. And everybody know the story of David and Goliath, but this is bigger than Trump. This is.
for the warrior. This is for you and I. This is for euphoria. Give me a peace of mind. God is recording this. Won't you look in the sky? Tell him that you got the behavior. Your neighbor. Even when stability's never in your favor. Fly with the turbulence. Only last a minute. Land on your dreams and recognize you live it. Run through the valley and peaks with bare feet. Whoa. Run through the flames. There's more passion for me. Whoa. A glass that's the morning just so the world can see. Metal wounds on me. You're watching me lick them clean. I know, I know. My pride, my goals, my eyes, my lows. I know, I know. It's mind control. I know I can prosper. No imposter. Prosecute my posture. I stand up and I stand by you. What? I am a freedom fighter, the name that his story wrote. And even through disaster, I have the tiger for hope. I'm trying to find my way back. There's no day off for heroes. And even when I'm tired, go is the only word. And the night is taking over, and the moonlight gets exposure. And the players have been chosen, and it seems like fate has spoken. When it seems your faith is broken, by the second losing focus, ain't no Wait a get out, get out, get out, get out Unless you're my boy But they wonder this is pretty much labelled sorry hang on hang on now granted this is pretty much until label sorry uh, my spell checker has decided that it was going to 
change words that I was typing into Google on my iPad. Hang on a second. What's until label? This is pretty much an... Oh, it's an unkillable. <laughs> <laughs> well, spell checker can... God damn, autocorrect. 